Warning. The podcast you are about to experience may contain content that isn't suitable for younger audiences. So, if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Welcome to Villainology, a podcast revolving around our favorite personifications of humanity's darker side, and what truly makes them the scourge of their respective worlds. I am your host, Rob Mobley, and y'all are in for one hell of a Halloween episode. For those of you that are new here, the basic idea is that I present each guest an opportunity to discuss at length someone who is widely considered to be a villain, and to offer their own personal insight as to why they find them so intriguing. These opinions are totally subjective, and I find that hearing the thoughts of other people on someone you either love to hate or hate to love helps to better understand these characters as a whole. Our guest today was once the Bush Cassidy to my Sundance kid in the field of terrorizing guests as crazed sanatorium doctors in New York City, and is currently producing several of his incredible original plays through his own company, Dun Vegan Productions. He's a writer, actor, director, and we'll put you in the ground with facts about Dune, Mr. Lane McLeod Jackson. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to say this as I think one of your biggest fans early in on this. Uh, it's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. You are far too kind to me. So Dun Vegan Productions, it's been super busy during quarantine. What, what have you guys been up to? Oh, well, you see, it's the one advantage of being trapped in a uh, cell. Uh, your your audience can't see this, but you, you're actually communicated in with me from a padded room. This is uh, true. This is very uh, true. Uh, so just heads up, it's pronounced Dunvegan. Dunvegan, uh, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, it's a fun, because the name is the, the hereditary MacLeod Castle on the Isle of Skye. It is the longest held familial castle in Europe. It's over 800 years old with a bunch of myths connected to it. And my feeling on theater, it should always be that sort of bridge between reality and what is beyond both fantasy, working life, and all of that blending together. And it's also where Highlander is set proportions of it, which... I mean, there can only be one at can. this point. <laughs> so Dunvegan Productions, I'm not in any way affiliated with Dunvegan, but a bed and breakfast on the island does follow me on Instagram. So, <laughs> so you're official at this point. I feel it. I basically feel it. Listen, if over 2,000 people die, I think I'm the next heir. We'll just put that out in the universe yeah, for you. Yeah, <laughs> So what have you guys been doing? What uh, I know you've had several shows you've done over the course of this quarantine. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we started out with readings, like I think lots of people did, right? So readings of my original work, readings with uh, your first uh, guest on this show, Tyler Riley, who's my long-term yes. uh, creative partner. Uh, we did a play together, and that was sort of our first Zoomish reading. And then... I don't know about you, and I don't know about the, the millions who are listening to us, but I can't stand when art makes it seem like they don't want to do the thing they're doing. 
like go on. Yeah. So because like sometimes you read a novel and they clearly want to be a movie and you're like, get some producers. Stop taking your frustration out on me. And there was a lot of these Zoom readings, which were clearly, well, we'd like to be on stage, but everything's closed and we're sad. So I was like, if we're going to do a Zoom show. Let's play with it. Let's try to figure out what makes what what could make this art form different. And we 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 succeeded on some things. We failed miserably on others because I don't believe in doing anything well. That's a lie, by the way. I worked with some great technical people uh, who I got to give a shout out to. Melissa Bondar, my stage manager, just was a technical marvel. We brought in great performers, but they all had the misfortune of working with me. So they're all fairly traumatized. But <laughs> Do you have any other projects in the pipeline coming up? Oh, maybe. And yes. Maybe. And maybe. And definitely. And for sure. And I have no idea. Uh, we're hoping for a full Zoom production of one of my originals called A Prophet's Gamble, which takes place the night before King Arthur removes the sword from the stone. But what backroom deals had to take place? Because if there's one thing we wanted, it was political intrigue on a King Arthur's court. Politics in, in Camelot, that, that's not a thing. That, that not can't a be thing. A thing. <laughs> you know, I always feel, I'm going to segue for a second. There was a show I really liked. Uh, it was a King Arthur show that came out the same year as Game of Thrones. And I was like, ah, you never had a chance. That's not not going to happen, yeah. buddy. Good work. Eva Green is amazing as Morgan Le Fay. It's worth checking out on DVD. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that casting makes total sense. Oh, she and she's great. She's great. They do a great thing. They have her... Her mentor is this really scary nun, and you're not sure what the relationship is because they were building up to a second season that never came. But man, I really liked it. Beautiful episode called Excalibur, just stunning. Uh, the relationship of Merlin and how it comes out of the the water and the way they take the myth is lovely. I like when people mess with the myth. So anyway, oh, yeah. my version of that will probably come out sometime in December, and we're going to do a reading to my wife's original short story which was a runner-up in the writer's digest horror short story category so out of like six thousand writers my wife was one of five people mentioned nice yeah yeah she's really talented you should talk to her as opposed to me Do you, have you in in the time that you've been writing i mean I, I i've read many of the plays you've written they're all fantastic is there anything that you have not written about yet that you have kind of been toying in the back of your brain oh yeah Oh, yeah. Tons of stuff. Uh, John Henry is probably my favorite. Ooh. It is the saddest story. Like, every other tall tale ends with this sort of triumphant, and it, it's, it speaks to the experience. It, it's, it's a story like no other, and it comes from a tradition like no other. So that, that exists somewhere in the ether. Most myths I have a version of, in one way or another. Uh, either an adaptation or a new approach. But if we're going off the top of my... Dracula! Oh, bugger. Are we going to cut that? Well, I mean, since we're here, I mean, I might as well ask, tell us, Lane McLeod Jackson, which villain have you chosen? Well, this may shock your listeners, but I've chosen the undead king, the count like no other, the Nosferatu himself, Dracula. Welcome. To my house, 
I must have fallen asleep. The carriage had pulled up in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle. The coachman was nowhere to be seen. Welcome to my house. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. The face was strong, very strong, aquiline. The mouth, so far as I could see under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking with peculiarly sharp white teeth. Mm. You hear them, Mr. Harker? Uh, the wolves? The children of the night, as you say, Mr. Harker. The wolves. Listen. Mm. Come now. There are many things you must tell me tomorrow. Of England and of the estate there you have purchased for me. Why, uh, yes. The estate is called Carfax, I believe. Yes, that is so. But now I will detain you no longer. You will find your room in readiness. And I advise you not to leave it during the night. So way to spoil it for our guests. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so why Dracula? Yeah, what I was saying was Dracula is someone I'd wanted to write about for a long time and finally got around to doing. And... I always wanted to do him because when you read the opening third of the book Dracula, which is about as terrifying series of words put to paper as I think has ever existed, it still to this day holds up. Uh, he gives a speech about the nature of what he is, and it is so different from the adaptations. It's about blood. It's about pride. It's about conquest, and it is about putting yourself against the world and viewing the world through the prism of violence. And I was like, oh, he's a fascist. And my approach was then, yeah, I wonder how Dracula would approach with that lens in mind. Because, of course, that wasn't a thing in the late 19th century, 1800s. But the seed of that, that idea of blood and conquest raging over and is something to be proud of. I was like, yeah, I can do something with this germ. So I did what everybody who adapts Dracula did. I ignored most of the book, took the parts <laughs> I wanted. It's beautiful. As someone who's read the book like 12 or 15 times, you never see an adaptation that comes close. Like ever. Sure. It's, it's, it's funny. And everybody says they do. Everybody says, you know, we're going to talk about the real Dracula as Bram Stoker envisioned him. I'm like, nah, no, you're not. <laughs> you're going to pick your favorite six lines. You're going to make a screenplay or a play based on those six lines. And it's going to be great. And we're all going to love it. You're not wrong. What do you, speaking of the novel, what do you think Bram Stoker was trying to say with this character? How do I say this delicately? Get all of these Ottomans out of London. Get all of these... <laughs> I mean, it's part of an entire tradition of um, invasion fiction, right? You know, the British yeah. Empire is expanding to sort of untold levels. It's going to be a height sort of uncomparable to any other empire in history. And part of that is this influx of strange new people coming aboard. And Stoker, with his... um tendency towards gothic imagination and his love of sensational fiction, as they would call it, ties in that tradition with the newly emerging gothic horror tradition and his tendency towards the dramatic. Remember, this was Henry Irving's personal assistant, and Dracula is based largely on the dramatic actors of the day. 
that's who he wanted to play Dracula, right? You know, he, if he was going to write Dracula actually as a stage yeah, play. Yeah, uh, I believe if the story is correct, which it might not be, almost all good stories are based on some level of lies. He asked, and Irving said no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and you said it, the, the idea that invasion fiction was very big in the country at the time. I mean, I also believe that's right around the time H.G. Wells wrote War of the Worlds, oh, yeah, which was both. another big one at the time, and... And you're absolutely right. The idea of the other was a very kind of scary thing to a Victorian England at the height of its power. At the height of its power, at the height of its propriety, at the height of its moral sophistication. Yes, we know how the world works and nothing will ever go wrong. Please ignore Europe in 20 years. One thing I always found particularly interesting about Dracula and and it's obviously a bit of a hallmark with vampires in general, but he seems to only have a thirst for female-identifying blood, most notably Lucy Westenra and Mina Murray. Now, he had Jonathan Harker in his castle for the longest time, and he didn't once try to turn him. And yet, when the three vamp sisters tried to seduce Harker, Dracula rebuked them with the phrase, He is mine. Why do you think he is so specific in his choice of prey? Well, and this is where I differ from many people. Yeah, you're getting you're getting the Dracula anarchist over here, Rob. Um, <laughs> most, Just what I wanted. Most people think of Dracula's sin as lust, for lack of a better term. The craving of blood, the craving of um, predatory in a uh, in a sexually desirous kind of way, right? Mm. And book Dracula, book Dracula only. I don't buy it at all. He never talks about women, ever. Mm-hmm. He has tons of conversations with John, and never once does he bring them up. They are prizes. They are ways to claim ownership over his enemies in the same way that he takes their land, in the same way he takes that he will take their country from them, right? But they're not people to him. He never talks about them. He talks about John. He, he talks about his enemies. He refers to Van Helsing later on as an enemy, right? But Mina, she, he takes Mina because they care about her. Lucy, he takes Lucy because three men are interested in her. That belongs to him. He owns it. His sin is pride. He is a conqueror, not a seducer. In the book. In the book. Right. I mean, we know that Dracula isn't the first vampire novel to have been written. I mean, it was predated by Von Goethe's uh, The Bride of Corinth. There was Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, and most notably Lord Byron's unfinished work, which was later completed by John Polidori, which was the vampire with the Y instead of an I. And yet Dracula has remained the seminal book regarding these creatures. Why do you think it has endured the way that it has? Well, I have my fast answer and my, my longer answer. My fast answer is the name. The name Dracula is cool. The name Dracula is like, that sounds vaguely different, but also combines the Dracul dragon. You have these syllables that go. So it does both. And and frankly, uh, with the exception of Camilla, which was a fairly big hit at the time, but didn't have the benefit of motion pictures being invented only 20 years later, there's nothing quite like Dracula. My other answer to that is Dracula exists outside its plot. There's a reason why tons of people love Dracula 
and don't really know what happens in that original book. And heck, don't know what happens in most of the movies. Dracula, as he's tied to the plot, is actually kind of meaningless. Who the victims are change. Where he is changes. The time he exists changes. Van Helsing is most consistent, though. But even then, who Van Helsing is changes. It is Dracula who remains consistent. He's sort of a character in search of a plot every time he appears. And because of that both flexibility and iconicness, there's a reason people gravitate towards him. I can be original with the character without having to deal with all the messy parts of the story I don't want to deal with. But everyone will still know who Dracula is. Absolutely. And that kind of leads into my next question, which was he is easily one of the most recognizable icons of the horror genre, having been adapted into just... I think anybody who's anybody knows who this person is. I mean, I personally found Orson Welles' adaptation for the Mercury Theater Radio to be <laughs> particularly gripping. That might be my favorite version of the story. What would you say is your favorite depiction of him? Bela Lugosi's Dracula, no question. Oh, yeah. No question. For a couple of reasons. One, I think Lugosi is a victim of the time in which he acted because he was a truly brilliant actor. He mm -hmm. is a better actor than almost any of the other universal monster people. And he didn't even get what he, he almost didn't even get Dracula because of the fact that he was not from the States and they didn't want to listen to that. He brings humor to the role. He brings poise to the role. He brings a sardonic enjoyment of the suffering that may or may not be caused. There's a line. There's a line that does not exist in the book that almost, not all, but almost every Dracula adaptation uses it. And it is only because of his delivery. The line in the book, when Jonathan Harker's eating and all that stuff, and he asks Dracula to join him, to, to make sure I get this wording right, because your vast fans will come at me if I don't. <laughs> he says, I have already dined and I do not sup. Right. That's a very time period way of saying I'm not going to eat because I'm a bloodsucker and I don't want you to know that. Right. But sure. that's the line in the book. I have already dined and I do not sup. Lugosi says I never drink wine. And it's the pause, the smile and the eyebrow lift, which tells you everything you need to know about that character. And mm -hmm. everyone reacts to it. Everyone's got to deliver the line in their own way. And these are great actors. Frank Langella is a great actor. Oh, Christopher sure. Lee is a great actor. Gary Oldman is a great actor in an unfortunate movie. Like, these are great, <laughs> great actors. I was wondering when we were going to bring up Bram Stoker's Dracula, the, the <laughs> Coppola movie, in this conversation. Yeah, for those of you out there that don't know, when Lane and I used to work together, I used to tease him on this movie because, I mean, I personally think that it's it's not a terrible movie. It's Lane's favorite adaptation ever. He will talk at like I said, he talked a lot about Dune in the very beginning. Coppola's Dracula is the quintessential movie for him. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? It is, and I say this with all due respect to the people involved. Francis Ford Coppola is a genius, a gem in cinematic history. Gary Oldman is wonderful. Uh, Winona Ryder is is a lovely performer. It is the worst film ever made. <laughs> it fails on every level. 
I hate it so much. I hate and it. And yet it, it walked away with like four Academy Awards. For costumes. This, okay, here's what I need your listeners to do. I want you to type in Miracle Max from The Princess Bride. And then I want you to type in Old Dracula from Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. And if you can tell me the difference, Rob will pay you money. It is ridiculous. Don't make that and it doesn't stop there. Look at Tom Petty's covers and then look at Dracula when he's a young person. And then if that's not done for you, if you look at Lucy's funeral dress, which won an Academy Award, and then you look at the flowers from Alice in Wonderland, it helps if you're on some sort of hallucinogen because they start to blend in together. It's awful this is the film this is the film where they went to francis for coppola and said hey man that's a pretty intense bestiality scene you sure you want to go that direction and he said you're right we should add a second that's this film oh god oh god see this <laughs> this is why i brought you on the show <laughs> Just for this little conversation right here. Oh. Oh, God. I do have to give a shout out to two legitimately brilliant performances in the movie. Tom Waits' as Renfield is iconic to the level that sure. I don't know the actor's name, but the only Renfield as good is the guy in the Bella Lugosi version. They're these sure. two ridiculously iconic performances. And Anthony Hopkins, who clearly was presented the script and said, oh, Oh, it's a comedy. This is hysterical. <laughs> and then proceeded to perform in that manner for the rest of the film, bringing much needed light to it. You know, I will, I'll forever forgive that movie because it does the one thing that a lot of adaptations fail to do, and it's bring in the character of Quincy Morris, who to me is the most underrated character in that entire story. Yeah, but for an, I'm like, for an Italian director, don't you think they could have brought in an American actor? Like his accent sound, and he may be you talking a, about Billy Campbell. Yeah, I mean he may be American. Billy Campbell's American. He may be, but he doesn't sound it. <laughs> he played the Rocketeer. Oh, good for him! You'd think he knew what a Texas accent sounded like at some point in the last two hundred years. <laughs> you leave Billy alone. Okay, I mean he is not the biggest victim in that movie. I mean. Lucy Westenra walking up to him and asking him to show him her his big knife and then literally pulling out a knife. He's he doesn't need me dragging him. You're right. He's been through enough. <laughs> God, Carrie Ellis, oh. poor man, probably gave up after that. Started just weeping in the corner. I assume they all have a recovery group. <laughs> <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> I'm, I'm not nice about this film. Well, speaking of Renfield, you brought Renfield up yes. as a character. I love Renfield. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he's he's an iconic thrall character. I mean, if if anybody thinks of a famous evil sidekick, he is easily in the top five of all time. And I will say, I don't know this to be true, but I've read Camilla. I've read the others. I think that's a Stroker innovation. I think that human thrall who helps him out in that particular way. And if it's not, it like many things in Dracula, it defines that kind of character ever afterwards. Well, and, and that's the curious thing. It's, you know, I know in, in the Lugosi version, Renfield replaces the Harker character. Yes. Renfield is the one that goes to mm -hmm. Castle Dracula and is the one that is turned crazy 
and returns to England with the body, which it's not a bad choice. It kind of makes sense because you're like, oh, that gives a reason as to what he's been doing this whole time. So so it's the right choice because Harker should have died. And, and that's that's <laughs> the thing I want to bring up is that why was Harker just allowed to just rot in that castle? Why wasn't he turned into a thrall like Renfield was? So in the original book, which is is sometimes hazy with the details, but Dracula doesn't turn Renfield. Renfield's already unhinged. Renfield is able to sense him because Dracula is able to influence his power at far greater distances in the book than is usually portrayed. Lucy starts doing the night walking again long before he shows up to England. And Renfield, there's some sort of indication that he senses him. But he doesn't turn Renfield. That's an invention in the Lugosi version that everyone was like yeah that makes sense now that we think about it that character doesn't make a lick of sense there's an explanation so if nothing else dracula was more taking advantage of people's weaknesses that were already present yes he's huh. a he's a predator yeah well yeah 100 percent. like i had always been under the impression that he had used some sort of Jedi mind trick ability on Lucy and Mina and Renfield in well, some kind of capacity. And that exists, though not as overtly as it does later. And the great thing about Dracula is the Dracula mythos, all due respect to Stoker's uh, descendant, who's been trying to pick up a more original view of it. He wrote a book, um, which I have unfortunately not read, but he's trying to sort of bring it back to basics. But the beautiful thing about Dracula is Canon is not just the book. Like, I can rail about how people don't read it, but that's not the book anymore. And him as a mind-controlling guy, largely because of Lugosi, is a part of that now. Now, there are implications, right? Lucy does sense him coming as a pure spirit would, right? Renfield is able to sense his coming for those who are paying attention to the the underground figures, right? Much in the same way that he controls the meaner things, etc. So it is implied. It is made explicit when Lugosi's just straight up brainwashing people. And that never sure. goes away. But it makes more sense. It makes more sense that he messes with someone's mind and then they become his thrall. It's just not in the original book. And well, in the, in, even in the book, I think I read it, God, when I was in middle school, maybe? I mean, I had, I remember reading... My elementary school had these old black and white kind of synopsis books for the old Universal Pictures. Oh, those movies. were so cool. I think I know what you're You know what I'm talking about? about? Yeah. Because that was my first introduction to Frankenstein, to Dracula, to the Invisible Man, the Wolfman. Mm -hmm. And they had just production stills, little, little pictures from the movie and little layouts of the, the plot of each book. And I remember being engrossed by them because they just, I specifically remember the picture from the Invisible Man Ooh. and it had the shot of the feet in the snow. And I was like, what is this? And that kind of influenced me wanting to read these stories. And I think the first one I read afterward was, it was kind of a, a abridged version of Frankenstein mm -hmm. and devoured that. And I was like, okay, I got to know Dracula and ended up just reading the actual novel. And what surprised me about it was that it was the most original novel, even for me being a, a, a young person at the time it still felt like something I had never seen before, that it was all told through letters and journal entries and newspaper clippings. And it was all compiled as if it was a, a real event that happened. I mean, I, you almost want to imagine that if somebody were to have done this today, 
it would be the perfect podcast. Yeah. The way they do it. Like like how Tannis is or how uh Serial is. The way it's set up is is has that same exact flavor. Uh, as opposed to, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein where it's much more linear and it's all told through there are journal entries in there from Victor, but it's mostly a very linear story. Oh, it's uh, it's bookended by the ship captain who finds Victor dying in yes. the Arctic, right? So, but other than that, yeah, no, he it goes da 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 da. The monster gets his say, and then Victor gets his say. I will say, I think Frankenstein is a gorgeous book. Oh, it's beautiful. Mary Shelley created two genres just with that one book. Yep, science fiction and horror. Yeah, and she's the best writer of her little group. I, Absolutely. I, I think Byron is overrated and I'm not much care. <laughs> I do I I do. I think I if we were talking about pure literary merit as opposed to villains, I would go with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Sure. I mean Percy Shelley had some great poetry that was done, but Yeah, sure, yeah no Ma- Mary Shelley 100% was like the one that endured the most, I think. Yeah, well, definitely in, in, endured the most. I agree with you. I also think her, I think her prose is better. I think <laughs> I think her husband wrote a couple of good ditties. <laughs> Final thoughts. What does Dracula mean to you personally? Why him over anybody else you could have chosen? He is the predator in human flesh. This is the reason why I think he is so adaptable and why he has never, wait for it, died in our collective consciousness, uh, which is most monsters even the ones that deal with our inner viciousness don't talk to you beforehand. Not in the same way. They don't invite you to dinner. They do not have to be invited in. Dracula, as a character, invites you to be complicit in your own destruction. And I think that is especially poignant. There is a reason he sort of evolved to take the place of a Don Juan figure, right? A dark seducer. It's, like I said, I disagree with people. There are definitely gender sexuality dynamics in that book. But the idea of him being a dark seducer who preys on women and, more importantly, who women are part of that. I don't really see that in the initial book. The initial book, it is much more assault as opposed to this. Is because we see in Dracula the danger of the people around us possibly being as vicious and evil as any underworld creature. This is the person I invited into my home. This is the person who I invited into my bed. This is the person who I let get close. And then they destroyed me. They destroyed those around me. They have left broken bodies. And if they went to somewhere new, it wouldn't even cross a stranger's mind. They are that kind of person. And because we know those people exist. Mm-hmm. We know those people exist. And horror, when it does what it does best, gives monstrous dimension to the things that already haunt us. And that's why I think Dracula works so well. That's why I think Dracula can be used in so many contexts. That's why I think Dracula has become synonymous with vampires, even though I think the vampire myth is broader. But yeah, that's why Dracula is special. He is the second most commonly adapted English language character. I think he's the most adapted character, second most adapted character, period, but I want to be careful. 
under Sherlock Holmes. Naturally. And I think it's because we all see different things we fear. And this is the the thing that vampire myths, werewolf myths, and certain kind of demon possession myths play into, which is the corruption of self. And this is why people make the mistake of treating Dracula as a hero sometimes, right? Because they saw an interview with a vampire and they were like, well, that's brilliant. And it is. <laughs> and it is. It is. It's the, it's this different take. But they, they're they like, no, he's not bad. He's misunderstood. Uh, that's fundamentally my big spiritual issue with Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, but he's not the only one to make it. In fact, it's become kind of the norm for Mina to be a long lost love of Dracula, right? Sure. But that misses the fundamental point, which is you invite these poisonous forces into your life because you think you understand it, because you think it can be changed or disrupted. And what that is may be different, but it can't be stopped. And, and it creates blame and self-loathing and the feeling that you've been infected and violated. Now, Dracula is a unique monster in this way. And as a character, a sort of extraordinarily unique villain. Lane, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been exactly the conversation I wanted to hear. Thank you so much <laughs> for having me. Thank you for inviting me in. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not going to go to sleep tonight. Thank you for that. So, uh, normally at this point, I like to endorse a organization which I encourage any of our listeners to go and donate to. Lane, you suggested one this week that sounds fascinating. Uh, it's called the Southern Poverty Law Center. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. The Southern Poverty Law Center, which I'm not affiliated with in any way. Uh, I've just used their database for a long time. The Southern Poverty Law Center, amongst other things, tracks hate groups. Now, how they define hate groups is specified on their website, right? So it does not only include violence. So they have violent hate groups on there, but not exclusively. And what they do is, so if you hear a term, say Proud Boys, right? And you're like, mm -hmm. who are these people? What is the background? When did they first start to rise? Who, who are the known members, right? You can go to their intelligence watch and they'll tell you. They'll tell you under what category they exist, whether white supremacist or conspiracist or whatever. They have different groups. And then it tells you this is the belief system. This is what they have said. These are the organizations they sometimes get part of. And it gives you a fuller understanding of how these groups interact with the world around them. And then the Southern Poverty Law Center, along with collecting this information and working with law enforcement agencies and other people who track hate groups, they're sort of like the initial thing that a lot of people look at. They'll, um, and I believe they still do this, they'll sue them. <laughs> they like sue the Ku Klux Klan and uh, take all their money uh, and then give it to the people who they've hurt, mind you. They, they sue on, on behalf of people. And that's one of the ways they deal with them. So they don't have the financial means to spread hate. Best way to kick their ass. <laughs> Well, again, thank you so much. Uh, if you are interested in this, I'll leave a link in the description below. I'm also going to leave a link for the Actors Fund in the description. If any of you feel any sort of inclination, please donate. There are a lot of struggling folks out there in the entertainment world that are lost and afraid right now, and anything you can spare would truly make a difference to them. Thank you to Ross Lampert for composing the theme song to this podcast. He is a brilliant dude. And if you're in the market for any sort of music production needs, head over to his website over at daggerandink.com. 
And thank you, listener, for carving out a little bit of time for us today. If you like the show, please give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Villainology Podcast. Drop us a review if you like what we're doing. If if you don't, then you don't. And, well, <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this so far. It's been a blast to do. And hopefully we'll see you next time. Stay foolish, mortals. Ha 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 ha.